So I feel like in order for the interviews to have any meaning or make sense, we can't just be like, oh, you like cake. I like cake. Oh, you have kids. I have kids. You're wonderful to your neighbor. I like my neighbors too. Like that wouldn't get me anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. They they wouldn't teach me anything I don't already know. What I want to say is like, how can I hold in the same space at the same time that you're this lovely person and that you believe these things? Double and triple checking my equipment. Got my cables, two mics, headphones t-shirt as a gift this recorder in my hand i gotta go stop by and get an extra set of batteries i have my notes i'll probably bring my laptop that would be a good idea not that i'm gonna pull it out but uh all my notes are there so safe better safe than sorry right so i'm gonna grab this The thing about these things, these interviews, is that you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know what you've forgotten until you realized you forgot it. So, but at the end of the day, you just do the best you can with what you have. So, maybe I'll record a little bit uh, as I'm walking inside uh, to capture some of that as well. Wish me luck. To say that I'm a bit nervous is an understatement. I'm actually walking over to Leah Tao's house. We happen to live in the same neighborhood in Los Angeles. And when we met at Podcast Movement... Uh, we thought it'd be cool to do it in person. And so we finally were able to make it work. And it's happening. (laughs) So I wanted to do this Leah Tao style. So I'm heading over there with my trusty backpack with probably more things in there than I'll need for the next hour conversation. And uh, I'm trying to think what's going through my mind now. Anxiety. It, it's that uh, imposter syndrome thing creeps in a bit too. Because here I am going to interview someone who arguably um, helped kickstart the storytelling revolution in podcasting. Um, and so to say that's a bit intimidating to be heading over there with my Zoom H5 in my hand like I'm some sort of reporter it's funny I'm here a couple minutes early so I'm just hanging out outside trying to uh, collect my thoughts and I thought I'd share this uh, pre-interview mind uh, mind chat that's going on internally with you guys um so I think uh, I, was, I was really excited because I didn't really know a lot about Leah when I went to Podcast Movement. I think I had seen the podcast in passing and, and uh, I also live in a neighborhood that has had a couple of the moth storytelling um, events. 
but my wife had told me about the moth a, uh, a lot, and I just—I guess I didn't pay attention. Or not that I didn't pay attention, but it's just there's so much things, so many things going on that you don't know what to focus on. And so it was nice to have that time to, to attend that session. And, and shout out to Addy, um, my good friend and host of the Do It podcast, who reminded me of the session there. And she's like, are you going to that? That's going to be really good. And I said, yeah, I'm, uh, that's actually something I need to do because it was going to be a workshop. So she took two sessions. And I got to tell a story. She had an opportunity for folks to throw their name in a hat and I was happy that my name got picked. And, uh, and I told the story, and Leah liked it. And we had a little conversation afterwards. And uh, here we are. So uh, I'm going to head over here. Hi. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be providing some context for the interview where I think it provides more clarity. And uh, one of the funny things that happened is obviously like, like the trusty reporter that I am, I brought my headphones and for the interview and it became quickly apparent that, um, it was just uncomfortable for me, given that it was one of the first times that I was doing it. So uh, I, Leah actually asked if she could wear them, or I think I volunteered, and she happily agreed, because um, that's where she's comfortable, because it's what she does all the time. So I passed them on to her, and uh, she gave me some good feedback about um, sound levels and some noise that the cord was making. So we got that straightened out. And then I just uh, jumped into the uh, the Q and A, and so one of the first things that I asked her was about um, what planning, if any, she put or thought process she had around the the workshop she gave at uh, Podcast Movement. Well, we discussed what I might do, and I said, "Look, I'd probably be more comfortable doing this because I had such a busy summer, and I just felt like if I had to." do like a big presentation on my show and try to say something meaningful and pull clips. It would take me a long time. Yeah. And teaching storytelling is something I've been doing for a lot of years in a lot of different contexts. And so it's something that I can more easily do without spending hours and hours preparing like, you know, a talk. Um, so I knew quite a bit. I mean, I pretty much said that's the only thing I can do or have time to do. Yeah. Did you see Sarah's, uh, Sarah Koenig's presentation? No, was... I left before okay. that. Yeah, because she basically did. Uh, she had snippets and video clips and all that sort of stuff. So it seemed like she was telling the story of everything it takes to put that together. That's the, what I felt like I wouldn't have time for, you know. Yeah, but I think what you did resonated more because it's what you do on your show, and um, you get people out of their comfort zone to tell stories. Um, why do you think? Uh, why do you think stories are important? I think that stories have a unique ability to show us two things at the same time. And one is that the world is 
vast and diverse and full of differences. And the other is that there's this common core that connects us despite that. That might sound a little trite or a little kind of, you know, Pollyanna or something, but I really believe it. I think, you know, stories take us on these journeys where we get to have experiences that we've never had. People who grew up in totally different circumstances across the globe or in a very different social circumstance or a very different culture. And we get to, you know, have that experience and see how different their life is from ours and how different their reality is. But at the same time, there's this common human core that connects us across these social and geographical and cultural divides. And I think stories more than anything have the power to do that at once. So it's not connecting us by saying we're all the same. And it's also not just focusing on what separates us or what divides us. It's doing both at the same time. And that, I think, is the unique power of storytelling. Did your mom tell you stories when you were growing up? Not much at all, no. Uh, she did read to me a lot, but I don't really come from a family of storytellers. The Danes are not storytellers. I'm from Denmark. And I mean, that's not entirely true. You know, Karen Blixen, who's better known in this country as Isaac Dennison, who's, you know, wrote Out of Africa, is probably Mm -hmm. best known in the U.S., but was a, an important female writer writing initially under a male pseudonym, um, in the first half of the 19th century and and into the second half of the 19th century. Anyway, she famously said, I am a storyteller, you know. And so, uh, but she also characteristically left Denmark for much of her life like I did. Um, But I think, yeah, the Danes are kind of, you know, there are some cultures that are very you know, where, where, that I kind of see as like a nations of storytellers, you know, like the Irish or yeah. in the South in this country. And it's kind of a way of life to sit around and tell stories. And the Danes aren't really like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, a kind of a, don't be too flashy, you know, and, and to tell a good story, you kind of got to embellish a little bit. You got to have a little bit of ego or to kind of want to stand up and say, hey, listen to me, you know, I have a funny story for you all. And that's very antithetical to the Danish culture, which is like, just don't stand out, don't draw attention to yourself, kind of keep your nose to the grindstone. And I also come from a rather academic family, and I think academics are more cerebral and analytical, and storytelling is maybe a little banal. I mean, my parents like the stories I do, but I didn't grow up with that kind of storytelling, no. There's a lot of good Danish uh, filmmakers. And, that is true. Um, uh, have you seen Let the Right One In? No. It's the it's like a very stylistic uh, stylistic uh, vampire movie, but it's with children. Huh. And it's they remade it in the U.S., and it was obviously not as good. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of Danish films, and I, I can't... There's some others that don't come to mind right now, but my wife and I have just been fascinated by Danish films. And um, is uh, filmmaker Lars... Montreal, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lars Pontrier, we say in Danish, yeah. Yeah, he's Danish, yeah. And his movies are really interesting. (laughs) They are indeed. They're a little less, uh, they're a little more, they're a little edgier than my work, I'd say. Yes. Um, So after, there's this strange thing that happens that I'm sure it's been talked about, that when you listen to a podcast for a long period of time, you start to learn a lot about the host. 
and probably in your case more so. <laughs> that certainly than, would be true in my case. Yeah, yeah. More so than others. You talked about when uh, you were studying, you were studying comparative literature, yeah. and you, you made the decision that you wanted to come to New York. Yeah, and uh, how exciting that opportunity seemed to you. And um, did what did you know about New York City before you made the trip here? I've been here? there. Actually, I actually lived in New York. That's why I, I, a year and a half ago we moved here. So, Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so I, I came before you. Yeah, there's an exodus, I feel, from New York to L.A. right now. Did you see that New York Times article? I th- yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, about how everybody's moving from New York to L.A. Anyway, um, I've been to New York twice, once when I was 16 with my dad and once when, like, two years before I moved there. And that's when I really, with my boyfriend who was French but had lived in New York before, and the night we landed, I instantly was like, I love this city. This is the only place in the world I want to live. And then, you know, I I had a a boyfriend and studies I was in the middle of and things that meant that I couldn't just up and move to New York. But I pretty much, like, he and I broke up, and I was like, I just... I'm going to go to New York right now and then figure out how I can continue my studies in New York. Because if I don't go now, something will happen. I'll end up in another relationship and I won't get out. And it was like, I just, I I maybe almost broke up with him because I was like, I want to move to New York. Like it was very intense for me. And yeah, I just loved it. I, I loved the New York of those days. I still love New York. I still love going there. It was very surprising to me when I moved out here that I wound up loving this because I had never really liked LA. It's not a great place to visit. Um, and I'd come out for work and just would be stuck in traffic and have meetings with like horrible, you know, types, Hollywood types. I mean, they're not all horrible, but there are some, you know, and it's like if, Most if, probably are. if they'd been a character on a sitcom, you know, they would, people would have said, ah, oh, that's too far fetched of a caricature. And I was like, no, these people really do exist. So I just felt like who could live in this godforsaken place? But the other reason it surprised me that I wound up liking LA was that I had had such an intense kind of love affair with New York. And so I'd actually said to KCRW, who's the NPR affiliate here in LA and who's my partner and what has been from the start of the show, I said to KCW, you know, I am going to come out for six months and get this, get this show started and get to know you guys. And then I'm going to go back and do it from New York. And they said, okay. So it wasn't my intention to stay here. But then, you know, I had a kid who was 13 months when I moved here. And I just ended up feeling, I ended up falling in love with the lifestyle and the people. Like I met so many great people here, such a great community of independent radio producers. And you know, the, the, the outdoorsy thing and the weather. And I had this very active little boy who just loved kicking the ball more than anything. So suddenly I was like, Oh my God, I love LA. And now when I go back to New York, it's like, I'm always happy to be there and see my friends. And, but I do have to say, like, the things that people would always point out to me when I lived there and that I couldn't really see at the time, like you get there and it's either so freaking hot or so freaking cold and there's some crazy person banging the subway walls or maybe five crazy people banging the wall and rats everywhere and it stinks and it's, you just are like, oh my God, how do people live like this? Like they take the L train with their you know, babies strapped to them and their babies almost being crushed to death in the baby Bjorn, you know, and they rushed him to some daycare that doesn't even have windows, let alone like an outdoor space. And, you know, it just, 
is like, yeah, a, a life and that, that is, is, is hard. And I didn't feel that way when I lived there, but I do feel that now that it's a hard place to parent. And I think it's fine for the kids, but I think it's hard on the parents. And I love my life here. Like people are so open and friendly and they're like, come over and, you know, we have a little extra meat or vegetables or whatever it is. Like come barbecue tonight. And it's very spontaneous because everybody's got space and everybody's yeah. got cars and everybody's got yards and everybody's got barbecues. And so there's just this very easy going, like popping in and out of each other's lives and that I feel like there isn't in New York. So I think it's hard to parent in New York. And I also feel like New York is changing. I mean, you know, I think it's being crushed under its own success to some degree. It's like, you know, I lived in the East Village for 10 years and then I moved yeah. to Brooklyn and I moved to, I was like the last person of my friends to move to Brooklyn. And, you know, by the time it was like the East Village was all like investment bankers or people who were willing to live in a one bedroom with three kids. Like, and so much of what I loved about the East Village was totally over. And then I feel like that happened in Brooklyn too. And LA has much more this feel of like, it's, stuff is happening and developing and changing. And New York is becoming more like the Paris I lived in. Mm -hmm. Before I moved to New York, I lived in Paris. And of course, coming from Denmark at 18 years old, it was like the big, big world and a big cosmopolitan city that had more people than my entire country. And Paris was exciting for a little bit. But I also very quickly came to feel like Paris is really a place where everything happened a hundred years ago, you know, and it's kind of a museum and it's very, very pretty. And of course, tourists are very excited, like, oh, this is Paris, you know, Paris, but, but, uh, Paris, but, um, but I think that, uh, people who live there are just like, you know, people who live there are just like, they happen to be living in Paris. They don't come there with this like dream that I can be everything I've ever wanted to be. Yeah. Like, this is the place where all my dreams can come true. And I think that was very true in New York. And that's part of what gave it its intensity. And I think that's still very true in New York and still gives it a lot of intensity. But I do think that New York is at risk of becoming like Paris, like a place where it all happened, but then it became so established, so expensive, uh, you know, that it sort of lost some of that edge. And I feel like LA has that right now. I mean, I don't think New York is ever going to be not a great city, yeah. but I think that it's a little less fun than it used to be. Or maybe I'm just a little less well, fun than I used to be. How much of it is yeah. a function of you... Uh, evolving and changing in your life in terms of the things that interest you because I I grew up in the city and in New York yeah I grew up in just outside Yonkers uh huh sure so, yeah totally um and then I lived in the Upper East Side and then I lived in the East Village and then uh, I lived in Williamsburg and then right before we left we lived in the East Village uh, one more time with my wife but uh, it was the weather really for my wife she's from Colombia so she's like <laughs> um, single digits like this is not no working <laughs> the, a polar vortex. <laughs> I remember that when the polar vortex was happening, I was at the beach in Malibu with my kid and he was, it was in December and he was running naked into the water because the water can stay warm pretty late yeah. into the year. And it was just one of those really nice December days. And he was running naked into the water and I took a p picture of him and posted on Facebook. Send it to your friends. And, uh, no, I, I posted it on Facebook and I was like, Hey, East Coasters, guess where we are today? <laughs> and I couldn't believe that this is my life, you know? Well, my wife does that now because the first we live, um, on a street that has, just on both sides, super high palm trees. Yeah. And one of the first, like the first couple of days we were here, she took the picture. And she's like my new skyscrapers. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. But there's something about the energy 
that I do miss, but it's nice. I work from home, so it's nice to be in flip-flops like three straight days. Yeah. And and the nature around here is spectacular. We just got back from Joshua Tree yeah. this weekend. And you're never more than a couple of hours away from something like fantastic that's not man-made. Yeah. So, and I was wondering how much of it is that the things that are important to you now have shifted and you can appreciate things more like you know, the nightlife or the going out as fantastic as that is in New York City. And, and we have it here, but it's not as a, that's not the focus. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I think first and foremost, and that's why I started with that, like I've changed and my priorities have changed. And then I, but I also think that maybe New York is changing. And granted that too is partly due to me changing because, you know, where did I move from? Uh, where did I move from the East Village? Not to Bushwick, right? Or Astoria, I moved to Park Slope. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was also like I would complain about how bougie everything and everyone had gotten. And I was like, but look, <laughs> who's the bougie one who's choosing to live in Park Slope, right? I mean, it, it was Fifth Avenue and it wasn't quite, you know, I think yet what sort of became there was a bougier end of Park Slope than that. But yeah. I granted, right? I was like, you can't really speak to what it's like to come to New York now and maybe live in Astoria or one of these places that's like the rents are still cheap and it's still ethnic and it's still, you know, developing and changing. And uh, I totally acknowledge that, but I also feel like those areas are objectively speaking, just becoming fewer and fewer mm-hmm. in the city and further and further out. And, uh, you know, but yeah, part of it is that you get to an age where all anybody's talking about when you go to a dinner party is like real estate and schools, right? And, and that's a little bit of function of being in your thirties. Yeah. And, and, but also a little bit of function of what's happening in New York. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. So at that point, we jumped into the start of her career at the moth. And I was curious about, uh, how everything started. I came in early on in the moth to start the community outreach program and be the producer of the main stage. But there was another woman who was the executive and artistic director and she left a, like a, not even a year and a half, a year and some months after I started, I think, or maybe about a year and a half. Um, and then I took over running it and that's what I did in New York for 10 years. And then I came out here to start Strangers. And so when you mentioned a couple of times that when you were working at the UN, I think you quickly realized that that's not something you wanted to do long term. Yeah. I guess some people would think that it's a, a glamorous job with uh, interacting with a lot of different cultures. Is that not the experience you had? Or uh, Yeah, I was uh, a little bit disappointed in what I saw at the UN, which I hate to say because I'm kind of a believer in the UN. Uh, you know, I'm a pretty liberal person and I, I guess I don't you know, want to fan too much of kind of what I see as conservative criticism. But I think there is some legitimate criticism. And certainly, my vantage point was very limited. It's a huge organization. I also saw amazing things that they did. But I worked in communication in a department that was pretty messed up. And, you know, like anywhere, any organization, any company, right? There's some departments that have functioned better than others. Mm -hmm. And I felt like things, yeah, there was a huge amount of bureaucracy and problems. And uh, I I just thought it was, and it was not very glamorous at all. I mean, not at that level that I was at at the time. Um, So I was just trying to think from a timeline perspective. In 2001, you had already started at The Moth. Yeah, I started there in 2000. 
What impact did 9-11 have? Huge. Um, it's actually part of what led to my predecessor's departure because we were really struggling as a nonprofit. We worked out of her basically studio apartment. It was one of those New York apartments that they say is a one bedroom, but there's no door between the bedroom and the living space. Yeah. And the living space was entirely our office. I mean, it was my desk and her desk and all of our files. And there was, she had no living space and then she had a bedroom with just a bed. Right. And so, yeah. And we had no AC because it was one of those Brooklyn brownstones with the wrought iron, kind of pretty gates in front of the windows yeah. that you couldn't put oh, a wall wow. AC in there. Sometimes we had like three interns in that tiny little space and she had a cat <laughs> that she fed organic cat food, which I'm all for <laughs> organic, but it just stinks so bad in the summer. So it was really like, that's, you know, we had each a phone line that we used both for dial up and for making calls. So if you had, if I had to get on the internet to send a, an email, I had to like unplug my phone and plug it into yeah. The computer and do dial up, you know. And then get on and then unplug it again if I needed to make a call. Um, this was before cell phones or when cell phones the were joys really of the home office. for emergency. So that was the state of the moth, right? And then 9-11 happened and nonprofit funding was way, way down. And we'd kind of been counting on a big sponsorship to come through and pay for a lot of things, money that we owed. And they pulled that after 9-11. It just didn't go through. And I think, you know, yeah, that was sort of what led to her saying, you know, that was what led to her departure. We were basically totally out of money, and we owed some that we didn't have. What impact did that event have for you personally? Um, I think anyone who lived through 9-11 and lived in New York was struck by, you know, just the randomness of fate and the fragility of life. And I think especially as a young person, you don't have a real good sense of that if you've never lost anyone close to you yet, you know? And it was a shock on that level. It wasn't such a shock to me politically. You know, I wasn't like, oh, what? The whole world doesn't love the United States and doesn't think that we're the greatest liberators in the world. Like, I... I I still had could never have envisioned that something like this could happen, but it 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 didn't shock me that we have enemies yeah. <laughs> and are hated, you know, by many people. I say we, which is interesting. Sometimes when I talk about things like that, I say you, you know. It's very convenient being a permanent resident but not a citizen because you can kind of choose when you say you and when you say we. But um I that so it, I wasn't so shocked on that level, but it was it was shocking on the human level. I mean, it was very, very intense. I lived close enough that we got one of those FEMA vacuums, you know, that yeah. they gave to everybody. And for were you months, at the East Village at that time? Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was on a, First was Street. Well, actually. Where were you? Uh, 7th and A. Oh. Like next to 7A? Yeah, the, the they diner. Great, they had great, the best French fries and all And burgers, late night burgers. <laughs> 24 hour service. It was awesome. Was it officially called 7A or is that just what we call it? Yeah, it was called 7A. Right before I left, they changed the name to something else. But then there was a bar in 7th and B that was not called 7B, but we all called it 7B. Like with the horseshoe bar? Yes. Bayzax, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, 7A. Yeah, I lived also on 6th between B and C for a while. 
So I could see the towers from my window. Oh, yeah. And so it was surreal because I was watching it outside my window and then I would watch it on the TV and I said, is this a movie? Is this real? And then it was just crazy. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was for months and months, as you know, you could smell it every time you walked out your front door, the fire. And so, and, and you know, everybody knew people who lost people. My own husband at the time was actually supposed to be down there that day. Yeah. So. Yeah, I worked uh, like three blocks away and I, I usually checked the TV 15 minutes before um, I left. So I checked the weather. So the I turn on, that's the only reason I turned on the TV at the time. There's no mobile phones and no iPhone wow. updates. So the minute I turned on, it was 845 and the first plane had already hit. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, I guess not going to work and then it just obviously got worse from there <laughs> oh my god yeah and i had co-workers who were there in the chase building like three blocks away and then when the first tower fell that cloud of smoke went all the way up to the 16th floor and their windows got blacked out and and i imagine like some actually went out to sea and obviously those that did had no one ever thought that they would come down and they were like forced to like, run so was, and then to see the fighter jets yeah. Flying overhead yeah. the tanks in the streets the next week. It was yeah, some I don't like a movie. Yeah. And and for you that's that was kind of your hometown. I mean I'm sure Yeah. Yeah. But it's so funny how everyone you got like a small town feel. Yeah. I don't know if you felt yeah. that like the in the week after. Totally. It was crazy. In several months it lasted, right? This feeling of we're all connected and yeah. united and yeah. Because your perspective is not it wasn't as a pure New Yorker and wasn't as a pure citizen of the US, it's you know, as someone who's come here um, from Denmark. Yeah. And so that I, I imagine, um, I wonder if you, that allowed you to have a different take on things. Yeah, I mean, I think the human tragedy was so immense that I didn't really think about it so much in that way. Maybe. No, I don't think so. I think there was something very uniting about that experience it kind of didn't matter where you were from or who you were, you know, everybody just felt very connected and, 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 and bereft. Yeah. Yeah. How did you see a lot of uh, impact of that in uh, the stories afterwards in the moth? Or? Yeah, we had a challenge cause we had a show scheduled for late September, I think, which we canceled or for like the next week after nine yeah. 11 or something. And it just, you know, wasn't possible. Um, and then we had a show scheduled in October. And it was like, okay, what do you do? Like, you couldn't just go and do like a ha-ha show, yeah. you know, whatever was on the schedule. It wasn't possible at the time. It was the only thing you could talk about. But at the same time, it was too soon to do stories about 9-11, you need more perspective to do stories, but yeah. it was also impossible to talk about anything else. So we did a show called Carpe Diem, Seize the Day, with different stories, and we did actually have a, a firefighter mm -hmm. uh, tell a story. Um, but the other stories weren't about 9-11, but they were about this idea of Seize the Day and, you know, so they had a kind of gravitas that felt connected without being directly about. I think that was the right choice. So in, in 2010, you won the Peabody Award? Yeah. I mean, the Moth Radio the Award. Moth. Did, Did you know, um, is, was it, is it like the Oscars where you're nominated and everyone knows you're up for it and it's, there's a lead up? 
Uh, you said no, but you submit, which I haven't done since for my new work. I don't even really know how you do it, but you submit, um, you know, Jay Allison, our producer kind of did all of that on our behalf, but you submit your work for consideration, but it's not like, a. I think at the Oscars, you can more publicly promote, like vote for us, you know, yeah. uh, here it's like, you can't. Was that, is, was that important for you? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a huge recognition that the Moth Radio Hour was worth it and this thing I'd worked on for 10 years, you know, was recognized in that way, yeah. So, um, and then Strangers started a year later, 2011? Yeah, very end of 2011. Okay. I basically took time off with my son. Um I didn't go back to work at the moth after he was born. And so, and then I was like, I'll probably only have one kid and I've worked my whole life. Uh, and so I already knew that I was going to come out here and do this, but I first said, I'll come in the fall. I need time. And then I said, I'll come in the spring. You know, I, I suddenly thought uh, I've worked, you know, also through high school and college and grad school, like at night and then straight to work. And like, I've never had a, any real time off. And I'm from a country where you don't go back to work when your kid is 12 weeks. Everybody gets a year's paid maternity yeah. leave. So the idea of sending this like tiny little, you know, immobile goblin to daycare just didn't feel right to me or to be away from him. So yeah, I ended up having the luxury of being with my kid for a stretch of time. And you went to India. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we went to India. And it, when you landed there i think things didn't turn out the way you initially had thought they would well you know everyone had said india with a nine-month-old are you insane like are you seriously insane and uh but i thought okay yeah but this is not india india which it kind of isn't like everybody who came there was like some people even now have traveled a lot in india like leah you've never been to india okay i spent one night in new delhi but then went to Dharamsala, which is where the Dalai Lama lives. Yeah. And it's very Tibetan. Um, it's almost exclusively Tibetan. I mean, there are two parts to the town, and there are a few miles in between. There's upper and lower. But upper Dharamsala is almost entirely Tibetan. And uh, the Dalai Lama lives there. So it's tons of Westerners flock there to kind of take teachings from the Dalai Lama or do Buddhist retreats or whatever it may be. And, you know... I'd read that like Richard Gere owned a house on the outskirts of town. And so, you know, compared to the rest of India, partly because it's high up in the mountains and the water is pretty clear and like you can actually, I mean, we did each get sick once, me and my son, but you can eat vegetables, you know, and uh, without, you know, being guaranteed getting sick. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are, you know, very good hospitals and all of this that kind of Western money tends to bring. Yeah. Um, and it's very international and you can, like, it's a tiny town, you know, but you can get pizza. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So people came coming from the rest of India was like, this is the cleanest place I've seen in months, but not coming from the rest of India, coming from, you know, the U.S. via France, I, uh, given that I was pretty shocked because it is a tiny town with like, you know, and I came just at the tail end of the monsoon. So mm. there's like a, 
you know, kind of a gutter on the side of the street that just runs with like all kinds of trash and dirt and the cows and the monkeys have pooped in it. And then it's like people are selling their vegetables on display, like right there, you know, the water's like running an inch from touching the eggplant you were just considering buying. <laughs> and I was put up in this monastery, which was not, I wasn't there for a retreat. I was there for a work thing project, but I, they put, they put me up in a monastery, which rented out rooms. And so I thought, oh, this will be so serene, you know, strong, Shangri-La, chanting monks and like beautiful Himalayan foothills. And it was very, very beautiful. But that monastery was like, had dogs that couldn't get out. So they just peed and pooped in the hallways. And it was totally filthy. And everything, you know, just was very overwhelming with like, you know, and, and my job the first three days, there was no internet because the monkey had ripped the cable out of the wall. And there are cows and monkeys all over in the streets, you know, and just pooping on everything. And so it was like a tiny little, almost medieval feeling mountain wow. town, you know, with wild dogs. And it was just much wilder than I had thought when I thought, oh, yeah, this will just be, you know, this will be India light. And it definitely was. But then, you know, I didn't have anything to compare it to. And with a nine-month-old traveling alone, you know, I got to my room in that monastery and it was like, it was so dirty, the floor. And my kid just wanted to take the linoleum chips that were peeling off the floor. Like the floor was peeling everywhere and he just wanted to put those chips in his mouth. And I put him on the floor for one second and his like little jumpsuit or whatever you call it was his onesie or was like totally covered in filth from the floor. And then there was a three-foot gap in the fence on the little balcony outside they were like you're gonna get a room with a balcony i was like oh how great view of the mountains but he could like plunge to his death and so i put him on the bed and i pulled back the bed cover to just try to keep him on there until i got my bearings you know i had like this huge suitcase i was trying to lug up the yeah it was like i was just it, i was overwhelmed and i put him on the bed and i pulled back the bed and it was like an old-fashioned unused razor bled blade oh, in the bed and I just was like no there's no place I can even put my baby down for one second I'm you know what am I gonna do and uh yeah the pee and poop in the hallways it was just not a good situation with the baby so I moved uh pretty much the next day maybe two days in yeah and what I think was interesting was how the purpose of the trip was sort of to have you disconnect recharge maybe and re get reinvigorated um which is why you went there and something completely different happened. And then you met someone who actually helped you and you got better accommodations. And um, I'm just wondering if, if that any, had any impact on you in terms of how you thought about the, the generosity of people. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was really desperate and I like put the baby on my, in the, you know, baby carrier. And I started walking into town. I just was like, we got to get out of this place and just see where we've landed. And, then I met this woman who, you know, was like, oh, what a beautiful baby you have. And, and what, uh, you know, what are you doing in India? And where's your husband? And I was like, I don't have one. And I was just so overwhelmed by that. I mean, you said I wanted to go there to recharge. It's true. I really just wanted to get away. Like I needed perspective. I wanted to get away from my life. And I had this opportunity kind of fall into my lap. So, um, I, you know, and she was like, well, you know, come stay with us. And we have a small guest, like they ran a small guest house and, and, uh, I, they had a little boy who, 
you know, my son could play with and who had toys he could play with. And they were like, we'll help you find a nanny. And they really gave me a community. And it was, yeah, a very special encounter. And I've often told this story because it is kind of what solidified the idea of strangers for me. Um, because, you know, I was breaking up with my fiance. I mean, he was breaking up with me, my son's father. And I thought, oh, here's this person that you like thought you were going to spend the rest of your life with who suddenly doesn't want that anymore. And who's kind of a stranger, right? You mm -hmm. thought you knew each other really well. And maybe you didn't. He was like lying next to you having totally different thoughts at night. And, uh, and then here's this woman who's is a total stranger and who could make a gesture that kind of felt like it saved my life in that moment. And I, it got me interested in this idea of like, what are the limits and what is the promise of human connection? Like how knowable are we really to ourselves and each other and the people we think we're closest to? Mm -hmm. What are the secrets we keep or the, even for to ourselves sometimes, you know? And on the other hand, like the power of one person, one stranger to really shape your whole experience and your outlook on life. And yeah, so that was a big part of the inspiration. Is is this something that is um, a different way of thinking for you as a Dane? Because I imagine this concept of uh, in Denmark of um, realizing that we're strangers or thinking that that's something important to speak about and that we should talk about and address and find ways to bring us closer together. Is that something that's uh, discussed a lot? Or if you even thought about that concept growing up in Denmark? I didn't much, but I do think being from Denmark and some developments in Denmark in recent years have played into my interest in the theme. First and foremost, in a very banal way, I am in a sense a stranger in this country, right, as we always are when we move to a foreign country. And that might have informed my whole experience in life in some ways, right? Um, but also, I come from a place that is that was, when I was growing up, very much a monoculture, totally homogenous. I'm a little bit scared to tell this story, but I will. Um, or just because it's it's a, a little embarrassing to, and, and crazy to think about now, but I think I was in the second grade, and there were two kids in my entire school, and in Denmark, school goes from kindergarten through ninth grade, you're in the same school. Uh, and in my entire school, there were two kids who weren't white and they were both adopted. And one was in, uh, I think a class below me and was from the Seychelles and she and I were in an after school program together. And I was in the second grade and one day we were changing for some sports thing and she took off her shirt and I just stood there like gaping, like looking at her belly because I was like, wow, she's black all over. Like, and I don't know what I had imagined that it like stopped at the cuffs or something, you know, like at the neck, like, of course, if I'd thought it through, of course, she was black all over, but I had just never seen that I'd seen, you know, her hands and her face, but I'd never seen her belly. And there was just something mesmerizing to me about it. But it really shows you what a monoculture Denmark was that you could be in the second grade and not know, you know, that a kid could be black all over. And so that changed pretty drastically 
my brother's five years younger than me. And when I was in high school, I think there were four kids in the entire school who were of other ethnic descent, as it's sometimes called in Denmark. There had been big waves of immigration, initially of foreign workers from Turkey and then Im- immigrants and refugees and foreign workers and a mix of, you know, different things from other countries. And, you know, when I was in high school, it was just kind of starting. Uh, I mean, there were maybe four kids in the entire school who were of other ethnic background. And when my brother, who's five years younger than me, was in high school, there were maybe four in every homeroom class, right? So it really exploded and to me was a beautiful thing. I mean, I'd much rather live in a a multicultural society. I welcomed all of it. You know, when I was growing up, Denmark was on paper, like one of the most tolerant countries in the world, or that's how people perceived it, right? Backpackers would always have a huge Danish flag on their backpack because everywhere they went, people were like, you're from Denmark. We love Denmark. Denmark Mm -hmm. is great. And, you know, I think people from the U.S. were a little bit more like, oh, I'm American, you know, knowing that that wasn't equally well seen in every place they might go. But, and so Denmark was kind of this place where the sixties happened and didn't leave in a lot of ways, like high degree of social security and very liberal on all kinds of stuff. You know, uh, women didn't take their husband's last names and they worked, you know, almost as much as men did and had, you know, a ton of equal rights. And, you know, I I stayed at my boyfriend's house almost every night when I was in high school. And so did all my friends and like things that in the US would be considered weird were so it's kind of this very liberal, like, free love kind of place to a large degree, or that's, I think, the reputation it had. And suddenly it became this petty, racist, like, they can just go home and we don't want them here. And it was honestly, like, really devastating to me and and shocking and like a disillusionment that my country of such wealth and such privilege and such it seemed kind of solidarity that you don't find in the US you know where it's like okay I'll pay high taxes so that that guy's kid can go to college for free even though I don't have kids or my kid is never going to go to college or I'll pay taxes for that person to have free health care even though I'm have never been sick, you know, a day in my life. And I I believe in that kind of system. Fundamentally, I think it's a good system. It's not comparable to the US. It can't just be translated to the US. It's a tiny country. It's not a melting pot of, of constant change and influx and 350 million very different people trying to get along. You you can't just say, oh, why don't we do that in the US? But fundamentally, I believe in that kind of system and would like human nature to be like that and to see how quick, every not everyone, that's not true, but to see how quickly that could change from a feeling of solidarity to, well, but I'm not going to pay for that guy's kid to go to college when it wasn't a nation of people essentially being (laughs) cousins, you know, I mean, not literally everyone is your cousin, but there's a joke in Denmark that 80% of the population descends from Gorm the Elder, who was the first king of Denmark. And it's barely a joke. Like, you know, if people trace their lineage back far enough, we pretty much all do. Like, so there, it's easier to have solidarity when, when people 
feel that they're part of the same community, just like you see in the U.S., that there might be a very tight-knit, right, little Irish-American or Russian-American or, you know, uh, Puerto Rican-American or whatever it may be, community that is has a high degree of solidarity amongst themselves, but not necessarily like, yeah, I want to pay taxes for the other guys to, to do things that I don't need or want. And so uh, that was a shock to me and was also part of the inspiration for this show to kind of investigate, like, what is the possibility of human connection and how durable and sustainable is it? And are, are we good and generous by nature? Or are we petty and selfish? And I, I think we are both, you know, and that's part of why the theme still has interest in life for me, because it's, there's no easy answer. It's a constant exploration. You can't say, this is how it is. Human nature is this. It's like there are so many instances, so many reactions when we're challenged that can be go in one direction or the other right, can push us to be more generous or better or pettier. And and that's true for me too, probably for all of us on some scale, right? I mean, that doesn't mean that we're going to become, you know, Mother Teresa or Hitler, you know, but on a smaller scale, we we have experiences in life and we're challenged by things and it might pull us in one direction or another or first in one and then in another. And yeah, this is endlessly fascinating to me. There's a there's a book called Spiral Dynamics, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, and it talks about the concept of how we tend to identify um, with these groups, and they just get bigger and bigger. So when you're born, you know you're, the baby just want, everything wants the the attention, and then it's your family unit, huh. and then it's your your neighborhood, yeah. and you're like, oh, my neighborhood, and, and then it becomes your city. You know, my city's better than your city, and then it becomes the state, yeah. and then and then obviously becomes the nations. Yeah. And, and it's interesting how he plots this on a on a spiral curve huh. that's heading upwards. Huh. And so we're moving forward as uh, as humanity trying to move ourselves along that curve so that we don't no longer... Because there's now this common thing of I'm not just identifying myself as a citizen of the United States doesn't seem like it's there's enough, like there's more. I need to be a citizen of the planet, right? So yeah. that's the next evolution. Yeah. And, and it, this dynamic happens not only within specific areas and regions of the country because obviously in the middle east they're not thinking about anything but you know their religion and their country yeah that was the other thing i think it was your this is my city this is my state this is my religion and so you create these groups and if anyone's not part of the group then it's someone that uh, is your enemy so i think it's interesting um it happens in all countries but the fact that it you saw it uh, bubble up in denmark and probably means it was there simmering at some point underneath, right, for it to just call, have that visceral effect, a reaction. Well, it's easy to be tolerant when there's nobody to be tolerant of. You know what I mean? Like the true test is, so what if your neighbor suddenly someone from somewhere else, yeah. you know? And, and yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when I sometimes am shocked by the U.S. system, you know, how kind of brutal and sink or swim it is, you know, like, oh yeah, if you don't have health insurance, like too bad, you can freaking die. You know, it's sho It's shocking to someone who comes from Denmark to see, like, I remember when I was in New York the first time with my dad, I think it was, and um, 
there was like a, a homeless man that had died outside the Trump Tower. Mm. And it was, you know, this huge gilded marble lobby. And like, I mean, maybe he, who knows if he was dead. He certainly looked dead, but like, you know, he was being carried away on a stretcher, right? And he died in the cold in front of the Trump Tower. And I just, I mean, it was really shocking to me that people could be allowed to die in the street in the cold in front of such opulence, you know, and that that, and I mean, that's still the reality in this country. It's the income disparity is even more extreme. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes, it's still shocking to me that we allow that and that so many people vote for that and that so many people who aren't at the top of that ladder or that divide still believe that that's a good system. I don't totally get it on it. Like I don't, I honestly just kind of don't get it. Right. But I, but I will say that I see that there are two sides to it, right? There's also an enormous freedom in the U S that I, I, I certainly think there are lots of problems here, but there's also an enormous freedom to come and be who you are. And I've benefited from that myself, right? This country has been good to me, as the classic immigrant will say. And, and there's, and, and, you know, I would be on the train in New York going to work and like the entire UN would be represented on the N train or the R train, you know, mm-hmm. or, and just like looking at that and seeing all the different, hats and head garbs and, and, or scarves and, and garbs and he- head scarves and garbs, I want to say. And, 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 you know, colors and shapes and sizes and religions and languages and cultures. And it's incredibly moving. And there is, at least in a place like New York, a very high tolerance. Not, not like I'm going to necessarily befriend you or I'm going to help you out, but just like you, you can be here next to me and I'm not going to mess with who you are. I'm not going to try to convince you to be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And in Denmark and in Europe, for the most part, there's a much, there's much more philosophy of integration, meaning if you come here, it's okay, maybe, but you have to kind of become like us. Like you must learn Danish and you must send your kids to preschool. And you, you know, in France, they outlawed the veil in schools and things that from an American perspective. And in this instance, I sort of, my, my perspective has become very Americanized. Things that are shocking, you know, like you can't tell people how to live and what they can wear and how, what, you know, who cares for their kids at the preschool level. Like there is a reality to a degree that that by giving up some solidarity or some social security and saying, yeah, I'm not going to pay for you to be here, but if you want to be here and you can make a go at it, I mean, like, God bless, you know, uh, that that these things are make it not black and white, right? So you can't just be a European up on your high horse saying, look at these barbarians in the U.S. who are allowing their, um, you know, people to starve to death in the streets. And on the flip side, you can't just in the U.S. go, wow, look at these Europeans who want to, you know, I mean, there's certainly strong anti-immigration sentiments here, but I think, you know, it's been pretty extreme in Denmark and also the way they, they want to kind of integrate and so on, which seem weird to Americans, but but that's part of being a tiny country with a huge um, kind of social welfare state that people have a different perspective on those things. So, you know, human nature is not ideal anywhere, I guess, is the bottom line. You touched on it earlier, the, this concept or this 
uh, ideology where you're either on one side or, or you're on the other. Yeah. And you're so fixed yeah. in your belief that you can't even fathom that there's another way of doing things. Like you said, conservatives to even think yeah. that there's a this concept of helping out yeah. your fellow man. Yeah. And then liberals or uh, w- would think that there's how can you think that all you have to do is every man for themselves? Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there's going to be any way to cross that divide. I know you've uh, mentioned a couple of times that you'd be interested in, I think it was in the Reddit, uh, ask me anything you, you said that you'd be interested in. Someone asked about guests you haven't had and you said, yeah, you would like to have a, a, yeah. a, con- a conversation with a conservative. Yeah. I have interviewed a, a few because I wanted to do this. I even edited one of the interviews and I was going to air it or put it up and the people around me who work with me on the show were like, we don't think it works. And I ended up putting up a different story that was like from the first season from the old archive and getting a lot of flack. Like, we didn't want another rerun. But I just was like, this is too... It's it's scary for me because I have this show that people usually see as like radical empathy driven and, you know, or empathy driven and kind of with a mission to look at not what divides us, but divides us, but what connects us. And, and so, and here I would really have to look at what divides us and I would have to kind of get into that, right? Cause as I've said a couple of different times, like I know that conservatives can be lovely people. I just went and interviewed some people for a story, not about politics but about something else and they were all conservatives and it became very clear in the days I spent with them and they were the loveliest people like I wanted them to be my new best friends I adored them and and they are very conservative and we would not agree on anything politically and and there's this funny moment actually where we're eating cake or something and, and I'm still rolling one of them talks, some, says something about politics, and the other one says, now, now, we love Leah. You know, we know she's, a, let's not go there, right? We know she's a lefty, and we love Leah, so we're not going to go there. And that's what I do, too, right? Let's not go there, because that's what you do. Um, but so I have this kind of divide in my brain where I'm like, you're just a wonderful human being. And then, but then I leave, and then I go home, and I'm, driving in my car, I'm cooking in my kitchen, and I hear on the radio some asinine thing that the Republicans blocked or passed. or And I'm just like, who could vote for this and be a decent person? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I can't reconcile in my mind that this person that I really like and think is a, a, a better human being than I am, believes these things. And so just to go and say who are conservatives and who are meet them in their natural habitat and, you know, uh, with their kids and their families and determine that they're lovely people wouldn't further anything for me because I'm not living in such a liberal bubble that I never have that experience. I have that experience all the time. It's reconciling that with what I see as like a political agenda that I don't understand. So I... So I feel like in order for the interviews to have any meaning or make sense, we can't just be like, oh, you like cake. I like cake. Oh, you have kids. I have kids. You're wonderful to your neighbor. I like my neighbors too. Like that wouldn't get me anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. They wouldn't teach me anything I don't already know. What I want to say is like, how can I hold in the same space at the same time that you're this lovely person and that you believe these things? But of course, I'm scared of it, right? Because when I said on the show, like, are there any conservatives who'd be willing to talk to me? I think 
More than 40 people wrote to me and said, I'd be very happy to talk to you. I love your show, even though your politics annoy me when you do choose to get a little political. And I was honestly shocked, first of all, that they were so open and so game to talk. But also I was like, 40 people write to me. How many more conservatives out there are there who are even listening to my show? Like, I was a little surprised that you could, you know, listen to my show and be a conservative. Because I don't know if I could listen to a show of someone who's overtly a a conservative, even if I otherwise loved it. And I don't talk politics a lot, but I was not much. But I was a little surprised. And so I was like, I have to look at my own divide, right? It's it, A lot of it is in me. They might not see it as much. They're like, yeah, we love your show. It's annoying when you say that you're for Obamacare because we freaking hate it. But they don't go, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to stop listening to your show. And And there might be a tolerance on the other end that's greater than one that I find. I mean, I have tolerance for the humans, but I have a hard time having tolerance for the agenda. And I am someone who would go to death row and talk to a serial killer and say, let me try to find the humanity in this guy, right? And of course, I'm not saying that conservatives are worse than serial killers. I'm saying that I have some kind of block being someone who is on a mission always to find the humanity in people to like understand that or to find the humanity in people and to understand their point of view. And I have a hard time understanding that point of view, but I'm scared to go there because we would have to get into it. And, and, you know, mine is a storytelling show and the interview I did and edited, it, they were like, well, we want to hear more about the guy you interviewed and what's his life and what are his hopes and dreams? Like they wanted more storytelling. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not here to do a story about who he is. I'm here to like say to him, how, why is it okay with you that 39 million people in this country live below the poverty line in the second richest country in the world? Like, so, but they were like, yeah, but we can turn on Sunday morning talk shows to kind of get that debate from people who are much m- more educated on these topics and experts. <laughs> so like, that's not what we need Leah Tao for. And I could see that. So I haven't figured out how to get to the core of what is my interest in the subject. Cause it's true. Just hashing out you know, why do you believe this? Why do you believe this? Like it gets kind of boring, but without getting into that, it also gets kind of tame and just becomes this Pollyanna like, oh, these are good people too. I know they're good people. There's some in between that I have to find and I haven't found it. So, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I have conservative family members and good friends that are conservatives, but it's almost like these hot button topics that don't go down there or it's just going to turn into a shouting match. What was a pleasant, you know, night of drinks with friends becomes yeah. this just uh, hot button yeah. topic that because they're not going to change their opinion on it. And, and you're not going to change and neither yeah. are we. So where do we go? You're at yeah. a standstill. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, I'm, I can't, I can't disown my family. So my family is my family and they stay that way. And, and if I want to have an, a relationship with them, I just focus on the things that I can show them love on and, and bring happiness to them. And I maybe just leave it at that. Totally. I mean, that's what I do too with people that in my life, I'm not going to sit at a wedding next to someone, you know, and be like, by the way, we totally disagree on this. Like you can easily get along. What I wanted to see was in the context of the show, would there be a way to not have it be a shouting match, but to try to get like, to try to see, can I further my understanding of where you are? Because I think if there's anything that's making strangers of us in this country right now, it's that divide. And it's only getting bigger and bigger. And and I, you know, and, and, and so is there a way to get at it? Like, you know, it's hard. I've had guests on who've been, um, 
like liberals, I'm mean, not liberals, um, like free market proponents, Li- right? uh, libertarians, libertarians, yeah. and and I've and I have and I've had a guest on who re- who is the opposite. She's very liberal, and she actually reads all the bills in Congress, and she calls out all the stuff that's bad and we were at podcast movement and they they met each other (laughs) and i was like oh you should meet and then i was like five minutes later i was like oh my god this is horrible mistake because they just started you know after the niceties in the beginning you know he started he's very opinionated the guy and he starts talking and he's his opinion is fact like he says it as if it's this is the way it is you know this is the way it should be and then she of course is like the complete opposite and so wow you don't realize until you get people who are so passionate about their positions in the same room that this is not as easy as one might think yeah maybe i should do it with the two of them and leave me out of it so at this point lee and i had a little conversation about the candidates and the upcoming election and our thoughts about who would have the best chances and i thought about leaving it in but i I don't think it really gelled well with uh, the rest of our conversation. So I decided to take it out and uh, we join the conversation again when I put the focus back on the process. Um, One of the things you talked about is how, um, how much power you have when you put together these shows in that uh, you called it drunk with power, that you have this ability to maybe even reframe the narrative and I'm wondering, um, in terms of your thought process, when you when you have these interviews with people, if what you're hearing when you're there in person with them, um, is is the thought process always going on in your mind about what you're going to do when you get home and how you're going to tell the story and what to change from maybe what you're hearing in person? Um. So- so I think when I said the drunk with power thing, it, the context was editing, editing right? Yeah, so, yeah. And and because the moth, you know, where I worked for many years, people tell stories live on stage. And so you work with them beforehand to kind of get them ready and to t- shape the story and have it all figured out and tell it with the most oomph, you know, possible. But they are, there are so many ways that they can screw it up on stage, nevertheless. And so, and it's very hard to edit and post. Uh, and, and with this, it's like, you know, you do, I do these long interviews with, on strangers and I, and I then edit them. And so, of course, you have a lot of power if you have three or five or 10 hours of tape, or even more sometimes, you know, and turn that into a 20 or 30 minute story to kind of highlight certain things, but also, you know, sometimes to fix things that they said wrong, or like didn't quite land, or you can just ask them again. Um, So, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, where's the line? Like, when have you gone too far with editing? Um, For me, the biggest test of that has been that I haven't had a subject who didn't like the story or felt that I was unfair to them. There was one guy who didn't particularly like the story, but he didn't think that, I mean, he just had, had issues with some aspects of the story. And I could see why, because it was somewhat, like I, I didn't agree with his mm-hmm. perspective and that's unusual, but, but he never said, well, I didn't say that or that's not, you know, he just, it was on another level. But for the most part, you know, people have, been thrilled with the stories and and really felt that it said even better than they had maybe 
fully expressed that what they wanted to say. But also there have sometimes, also sometimes people have been surprised a little bit, right? Where they were like, even in the interview, right? So to your question, it goes kind of hand in hand. It's not like it all just is an afterthought in post-production or in editing. I, I also, going in, I pre-interview them in person or on the phone, talk to them for a long time, kind of figure out what are the facts of the story and what do I see as the kind of overarching story. And then I get them to, and then I ask them a lot of questions about that. And it's sometimes stuff that they haven't thought about, right? Often on the, what did it all mean kind of level, right? And does that come out just by virtue of you continuing to ask questions? Yeah. You know, and they're like, oh, gosh, I never thought of it that way. But now that you mention it, yeah, it is kind of sad. Like yeah, a good example of that, I think, might be I did a story uh, called Injustice for All. And it's that sounds like a very heavy topic, but Injustice for All, question mark. But it was about a woman who's a booker for court TV and about all the cases that go on there. And I had seen her talk about it in a very comedic way where she was basically just like, ha, 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 you should hear all these funny characters because she's a very funny woman. But I also thought, like, there's something really sad about the way these people are, like, flown there to have a small appearance on TV to, you know, and it's like they almost put white out, like, on their teeth to make them look decent, you know, but it's not going to hold up in the real world or look good in real life, but so long as it looks good for TV, like underneath the ha-ha of the crazy antics and the hilarity that does go on on the, you know, in her world, there's also a kind of tragic social underlying reality for me. And I think she thought about that as a private person sometimes, but she'd never like told stories that way or told the story that way. So I asked her a lot of questions about that. Like, but doesn't that bother you? And isn't that kind of sad? And like, this is the United States of America. Like people don't have teeth, you know? And so she, when she heard it was like, this was a totally different story from what I had kind of thought we were going to do going in, but she really liked it, you know? But so sometimes it happens. I think that it's not that people haven't thought about this, but they haven't, thought it through and I gave it maybe a darker twist than she had uh, originally thought originally thought you know in terms of it as a story right she might I wouldn't put something in that wasn't true I mean she talks about how hard that job is and how devastating it is because people with real legal issues who might you know need to sue a company or sue a lawyer who didn't get them their immigration papers or didn't get them the medical treatment they needed or you know they can't help, right? But people who have some dumb conflict, but who probably maybe aren't helped, but think this is like, I'm going to be on TV, maybe this is going to be my big day. And it isn't right, they're just flown back home to their miserable lives they came from. And so she talks about how hard that is. And it's not like I planted that idea in her brain, she lives it every day. I just emphasized it, you know, if she was like, No, I love this job. It's just an ongoing joke. And I just, I just have laughs all day, then I wouldn't have said, could you please say that it bothers you or that you sometimes have to take off your headphones and cry? You know, so I never want to manipulate the truth to something that's untrue. But, you know, I can get emphasis to something or keep asking about something um, that interests me. Because you know what, if she had just thought it was all hilarity all day long and couldn't see the underlying human tragedy, in what is mainly a funny story, um, I might not even have wanted to do the story because I would have been like, 
I don't like just laughing at these people. We can laugh at them, but we should also cry with them a little bit, right? So I pre-interview people to kind of see, like, do we even have a sense of what the story is? And then I interview them, and I can there kind of choose to pursue an angle, right? And or sometimes, often people have had stuff happen, but they haven't fully thought through what it all means, right? So I ask a lot of questions that end up kind of getting them there. And then in post-production, I can make it seem like they just spat out a perfect story. And yeah, that's the favorite part of my job. Do you carry a lot of these more emotional stories with you when you when you leave? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I think it's impossible not to get invested. And I think like real journalists have a kind of ethos, which is that you shouldn't be personally invested. And I get why. Like if you're a news reporter, you shouldn't, I think probably, I'll leave that for them to sort out. But but I think I couldn't do what I do without getting invested. And I wouldn't even want to. Like it wouldn't make sense, I don't think. Have you cried during an interview? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Does that, would that, uh, what, did, did that throw off or did you feel it or were you even thinking about that while it was happening? Yeah. I mean, there was a famous moment where I cry where I'm being interviewed by this love coach and it's, was, that was a hard choice to decide whether to include this moment of me being the subject, like kind of crying on tape. And I was very conflicted about it. But I'm also with subjects, yeah been very moved by something they've said and not like sobbed, but maybe like had tears in my eyes. And uh, yeah, at first I was a little like, this is a little weird maybe mm-hmm. for them. Like, is that going to weird them out? But I actually think I've come to find, I think it just makes them feel like I'm a person too, yeah. you know, and that makes it easier for them to be a real person and not like a persona. So I've kind of relaxed about it. Just let whatever happens, happen. Yeah, because they identify, because that's how real life is, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone cries when something yeah. emotional happens. If you didn't, yeah. it would almost be like, who is this robot yeah. interviewing this person? Yeah. And some of these stories, like uh, Frankie Carrillo. Yeah. That's just a completely heartbreaking story. Yeah. I mean, 20 years, was it 20 years? 20 years he did in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And yeah, I mean, but he's so yeah. He's his personality is just like oh yeah, yeah. This happened in twenty yeah. years. It's funny the context of how you listen to the stories, and I'm sure you hear this a lot. I had left podcast movement, so I was binging like crazy, and I was just waiting for my the gate at the gate, and that story came on. I was just sitting there like transfixed, and I was like, man, this is so sad. It is, yeah, yeah. He lives right down the street, not far. Oh yeah. With his wife and baby and like, you know what I mean? It worked out okay for him, but geez. So who do you, or who um, inspires you that is similar to, um, who's similar to what you do now? Or, or have you paid more attention to people who have these types of in-depth interviews? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm in a network with a lot of my heroes and that could sound like, oh, she's just plugging her network. But like, if you told me five years ago that I would be in the network with people like the Kitchen Sisters and Radio Diaries, it would have seemed totally far-fetched to me, you know? I just, people like them and Jay Allison, who produced a Moth Radio Hour, and Scott Carrier, 
who's produced some of the most interesting radio pieces of all time. And he really has been a big inspiration in the way that he's produced these highly personal. He's a much better writer than I am, but, you know, very unique and highly personal stories. And he now has a podcast called Home of the Brave. Um, but, you know, to think that I would be in a network with these heroes of mine who, you know, certainly Scott and the Kitchen Sisters are kind of a generation older than mine. Joe Richmond is maybe, you know, a little bit older than me, but, but, but they've been around much longer is what I mean, you know, in terms of producing radio. So I wasn't talking so much about age per se, but, and, and the Memory Palace was a huge inspiration to me. Love that show. Yeah. That was my first like podcast love. Yeah. The Memory Palace was when I first got into podcasts and I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, it's yeah. like um, this snippets of story, incredibly well-produced, um, very intimate. His voice is like, yeah, very reassuring, and yeah. uh, and then you know takes you down, and then he just sort of disappeared because he wasn't with a network for a while, and then I was like, where happened to Memory Palace? And, uh, and then obviously it just makes sense that he would end up at Radiotopia. <laughs> we felt so, yeah. <laughs> Have you met him? Yeah, I, I a friend of mine said I was moving out to LA. I was going to start the show. I'd never produced radio. I was totally terrified. I didn't know anyone in LA, and a friend of mine said, you should know this guy, Nate DeMeo, and this other guy, Ben Adair, who's also been in radio for a long time and who just started a podcast. I actually haven't heard it yet called First Time, Last Time, I think. I've heard that, yeah. And anyway, he's a very talented guy and does a lot of different things and, and doesn't hasn't yet had the time to put a lot of work into the podcast. But anyway, but I was a little... So I checked out their work, and I, and I, I really like both what they both did, but, you know, Nate's was a podcast, which was kind of, you know, the moth, we'd launched a podcast, like I knew podcasting, but there weren't so many like Mm -hmm. there are now. And I, that was the first one that I just was like, I was packing up in New York to move out here. And I listened to like all 36 episodes in, in like two days. Yeah, they're short. You know, they're short. And I just was totally crushed out. I mean, at the time there were 36 episodes and so I came out here and I was like, hey, you know, Sean Cole thinks we should be friends. I wrote to Nate DeMeo and, or I, no, I didn't say that. I said, I wrote a fan letter in the subject heading and I said, I'm moving out to LA and I've been listening to your show and I just want to tell you, I'm totally, totally love it. And anyway, Sean gave me your email and he, you know, thinks we should know each other. And so, yeah, um, so we connected that way. Is he as uh, nice in person as he sounds? He is very nice in person. I don't have such a, I don't know him so well personally. Like we've had lunch, you know, and, and it's been more more of a kind of uh, like a lot of shop talk. And I mean, partly just because everyone is so busy with their lives, right? He and Rishi Cash from Song Exploder and I were yeah. trying to get lunch together for like two months. And it was always my fault that it didn't happen. I just couldn't make, I couldn't make it work. But um, I think they had lunch without me. But so people, we get busy and we don't, you know, and then sometimes I've been like, hey, we're having this come over with your kid, you know, and he's been like, we're having a, you know, people over come over and it's just never worked out. So I don't know him so well as a like private person. I, we usually get together and talk like business a lot. But yeah. 
We've talked about ad nauseum, I'm sure, about what what your process is for picking the story. So I won't uh, get too much into that. But I'm wondering if you look back over the past uh, years of that Stranger's been on the air, how have you um, grown personally or as an interviewer? I think I've just learned to relax and kind of show up as a person. You know, I, I used to think like, oh, I gotta have questions <laughs> and, and I gotta be prepared. And what if I don't ask the thing that I was most supposed to ask? And like kind of trusting the process. I mean, it still sometimes can be stressful if I'm like in an interview, right? And I'm like, I want to return to that. But then I'm building the list in my head of like, I want to return to this. I got to return to this. I got to return to this, but I also got to let the interview flow. And I never, jot down anything or like glance at my notes or because I want people to feel so connected and forget about the mic and just like they're chatting with a friend. And so I, I don't have notes. I don't take notes. So it's like, I have to keep it in my head while also being totally present. And that used to stress me a little bit, but I think I've just come to think like, if you don't ask that question, like often it will come up again or you will remember to ask it. And if you don't, you'll also live without it. Like it's more important to be present. I mean, for the kind of interviews I do, I'm trying to get like in it to a deeply intimate place with them. My other question was going to, was going to be to ask you what advice uh, you would give to folks like me or other podcasters who are, having interviews or have the ability to have conversations with people. Be present and show up as a person. Like, don't feel like you have to have this wall up if you want to do what I do, mm -hmm. right? Don't feel like you have to have this wall up, like you're supposed to be in this professional role, you know, like just, I think we often think that that's the ideal. That's what we should go for. And I think we should just go for being relaxed and natural and real. Yeah. How did I do? Very well. <laughs> Very well. Um, yeah, I'm considerably more relaxed than when I first showed up, but uh, I guess uh, one or two questions. And what have you changed your mind about recently? You know, I think as a creative person, you sometimes get impatient and you kind of want things to happen immediately and you, and you want kind of every wonder be focused on how to make, you know, every artist is like my show and my book and it's, you know, should be the most important, it's the center of my universe. So it should be the center of the universe of, of everyone around you. And like, you know, it should be everyone's number one priority to kind of make your show a mega hit and kind of just realizing this is not, it's not really a changing your mind. It's part of a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm still too much in the middle of it to really be able to say it. Um, I know you were probably looking for something more specific. No. That's like, uh, just something that maybe um, I ask sometimes to get people to think and maybe give. Uh, yeah. I mean, so what I was trying to say is that I, I think sometimes I get impatient because of my own ambition and I, I want things to evolve quicker and I think I need to have faith in the process. Like if there was anything I learned from all those years at the moth, like the moth didn't become an overnight hit, right? 
it was building and there came a point where I was like, I know this is going to be huge, but it still took several years from there. Like I could see it, but I, I, it wasn't there yet. And I think, you know, with strangers, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm so lucky that I get to do this. And then other times I'm like, oh, you know, why, why aren't more people listening? I want, you know, and, and, and do I don't more people know it? And why don't, uh, and I get kind of impatient and I want to do something drastic to kind of change that. And I, I think I just, I'm like, have faith in the process. Like you're building this community, appreciate the connection you have with the people who do listen and how, incredibly engaged and wonderful and smart and interesting they are and like that you can make a living doing this like just like relax and like enjoy this time in your life and where everything is really going well you smell know the roses. and not be so uh, so <laughs> smell the roses yeah so i don't know if that's changing your mind about something but it's changing my perspective on like myself and also you know being more patient with Maybe not thinking like, why isn't so-and-so doing such-and-such or, you know, not becoming that person because it's just not worth it. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, Thank you so much for being incredibly generous with your time. Thank you for having me. And uh, helping me work through my uh, first in-person, on-location interview jitters. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. It worked out well. And I hope all the tape is good and... Or at least good enough. So, so we can get you more listeners. What's the best place for folks to uh, engage with you? So, I I have a website called StoryCentral.org, which is kind of just a site I built as like a calling card for some of the freelance work I was doing and stuff. And just like, hey, I, I'm a person and I have this podcast too. I want to build a Strangers No More website, but haven't done it yet. I do own the URL, strangersnomore.org. Um, but you can find all of the stranger stuff on storycentral.org. So that's probably the best way. And then on also the websites of my affiliations, which are Radiotopia. Mm-hmm. So radiotopia.fm and KCW, which is kcw.com. And you have an engaged Facebook community. That- yeah, I do very much. <laughs> yeah. So that's another way. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, Leah. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I'm back at uh, home base here. No more mobile microphone. Hopefully that didn't sound too bad. And it gave you a feel for what my uh, thought process, what was going on through my mind as I was returning back from my very, very um, inspiring interview with Leah Tao. And uh, it was was just cool being in her house and uh, we each had a microphone and... uh, it was weird. <laughs> I don't know how to really describe it. It was just one of those things where you, you feel like you're doing something that's like uh, legit. I don't know how else to explain it. Anyways, uh, thanks again to Leah for being so uh, accommodating. Podcast Junkies, as you very well know, is a proud member of Podcastica. Make sure you check out the other fantastic shows on podcastica.com. And if you need a, uh, a quick uh, refresher as to what those shows are, they are um, uh, ours, of course, The Walking Dead cast, Evil Dead cast, Under the Comic Covers, the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast, Once Upon a Podcast, and Game of Microphones. The most recent episodes of Under the Comic Covers uh, covers the comics Black Science number 17, Nailbiter number 17, and Paper Girls. Also... 
the latest episode of Walking Dead cast is uh, season six, episode five now. And uh, I'm, I'm just always a fan of the deep dive because um, I'm a Walking Dead geek. And I love, this, love how Jason and Karen break that down. And then um, Remy and team are pumping out the episodes on the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast. The latest is Star Wars 2 Attack of the Clones. I'm sure people have strong reactions to that movie either way. But uh, I'd be interested to see what the, the, the guy's take on that is. Intro music and outro music was composed by Cedar and Soil. Check out cedarsoil.com. So I've been thinking a lot about the work that goes into each week's episode. As as you know, it's about an hour and a half per episode, but that doesn't nearly begin to describe um, all the work and the preparation that goes in. So uh, I've been thinking about different ways to ask for support. And all throughout the show, it's been a variety of texting, mail, emailing, subscribing, um, uh, telling other friends, uh, visiting the site, checking out the show notes. I think... Uh, there's three things that I need all of you to do. Number one, if you like the show, download, and most importantly, subscribe. It is by far the most important thing you can do to signal to iTunes that the show is providing value. And interestingly enough, it's not important just to download because if you do, you'll miss an episode and you definitely don't want to do that because then you'll be behind all the other podcast junkies, junkies. If you're new to the podcast, I highly recommend heading over to podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes and listening to five episodes that catch your attention. That'll give you a true flavor for what the show is about. Once you've done that, um, it's important to subscribe. So you want to download and then subscribe because that way you continue to get the cool, sh- the cool stuff. The second thing I need you to do is if you're getting value out of it, if you're enjoying the guests and the conversation, you need to tell people about it. I'm not asking you to hijack phones or laptops, but if you want to spread the message and help me grow the show, the easiest thing you can do is tell people about the show. And last but not least, if you really love the show, then head on over to iTunes and leave the rating and the review. So notice I I changed the order of those. First, it's download uh, and subscribe. And then it's tell other friends. And then last but not least, the rating and review. So as I mentioned, I'm I'm putting in a ton of hours of show prep so I can have an insightful and well-thought-out hour-plus conversation with all my guests. And all I ask is if you like the show, that you take five minutes to download and subscribe, tell a friend, and rate and review. Thanks so much, guys. And for folks that have been listening and paying attention till now, then um, the retention hashtag is going to be Leah Live to uh, commemorate the fact that it was my live first live interview. So Leah, L-E-A-L-I-V-E, hashtag, if you listen this far, and that makes you a true podcast junkie. Junkie. Have a fantastic week, guys. Mm-hmm.